Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, The Price of Victory, with a message titled, Looking on the Heart. So turning your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 7 to 11, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. One day, the prophet Samuel showed up at the house of a man named Jesse. Samuel had come to anoint the next king of Israel. God had told him that one of Jesse's sons would be chosen by him to be king. And so when Samuel arrives, the first son he sees is the oldest, and his name is Eliab. He's tall and handsome, and he bears himself well. As Samuel observes him, he comes to a conclusion. He thought to himself, surely the Lord's anointed is standing before me. No doubt about it, he must be the one. But God intervenes and speaks directly into the prophet's ear. Do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. And then God adds something that would catch all of our attention. For the Lord sees not as man sees. There's a statement. God doesn't view things from our perspective. The things we value and prize, the things that make us assume, you know, that person is going to amount to amazing things. The things we value are not the things God values. God says, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God views the man or the woman to see them as they actually are. Now, I mention this because the theme of today's passage is about leadership and authority. You know, I've long thought that in the U.S., if you're going to ever become the president, you've got to have a certain look to you. I think most likely corporation presidents, leaders in industry and some other field, you know, all of that probably comes with a certain fit or a certain pattern. It's not only true in our day, it was also true in other times. In the world of the first century, leaders were also expected to have a certain look to them, as while leaders were expected to both write well and speak well. Public oratory, in which one had a certain style of communicating so that one gained attention while that was highly prized. That's what a leader looks like. You know, there is an account from around A.D. 160 to 180, which contains a physical description of the Apostle Paul. It describes him as being short and bald with eyebrows that met in the middle with crooked legs and a crooked nose. Well, for my part, I actually put no stock in that description because it comes so far after his life to be of any use. And and besides, that account of Paul's appearance is also a part of an account which is full of fictitious matters. So I simply discard that description of him. But that being put aside, it seems what the account had right was that Paul did not fit the, you know, tall, dark, and handsome look with all the characteristics of leadership that one might have expected. And I mention this because whatever was Paul's appearance, he didn't look the part of an apostle or a man to lead the greatest enterprise in human history, that is the Gentile church of Jesus Christ. And the false prophets, well, they made hay on that. They would say, so you think that man's an apostle? Have a look at that guy. Listen to him preach. I mean, how dynamic is he really? He's not the kind of leader you should depend upon. And using words like that, they regularly ridiculed Paul. They wanted him to look small so that their false brand of Christianity would win in the end. As we dig into today's message, we might do well to be encouraged not to concentrate all of our energy on outward appearances. You know, there's a fashion industry that wants you to believe that your worth is in your appearance. 
no less than God himself begs to differ. So let's read today's text, and I'm reading 2 Corinthians 10, 7 to 11. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ's, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. So let's notice how Paul begins. His first words, look what is before your eyes. Another way of saying that would be to say, look at what's staring you in the face or look at what's patently obvious. Of course, the rebellious minority in Corinth had been looking at Paul, and of course, they had come to a conclusion that they didn't like what they saw. He definitely, at least so they thought, was not the leadership material they were looking for. But that conclusion doesn't stop Paul from saying, look again, are you able to see more than skin deep? And then he adds, you know, the words, if anyone is confident he is in Christ, that person ought to remind himself of something. We, that is, myself and my missionary team, look, we're also in Christ. Now, at first glance, when we read that line, we might be tempted to think that Paul's greatest critics were suggesting he wasn't an authentic Christian at all. And in response, he seems to be protesting, oh, yes, I am. Have a closer look at me. But I don't actually think that's what he's saying. And here's why. In the very next verse, and we'll get to that, but please notice it now. Paul will move from his claim that he belongs to Christ to his next claim of boasting in his authority. See, I think that when Paul makes the claim that he is Christ's, he's making the claim that he belongs to Christ in a unique way. And so the statement that some were making that they belong to Christ in a unique way, and that was their way of saying that they had received special authority from Christ to teach the doctrines that they taught. And so they were false teachers who claimed that their doctrine came directly from Jesus himself. And by the way, if that's what they were claiming, we must notice that this is really nothing new. A great many false teachers in every age have claimed a special calling that Jesus himself has told them the message that they teach. And if I were to think of the major leaders of cults today, I would say that each of these leaders claim that they have a unique calling from God. In response, Paul says, if you are confident that you're called from God, perhaps you should look at me. What is before your eyes? You should notice that I too have been called by Christ. I mean, after all, how is it that the church in Corinth came about in the first place? Who was the one who showed up when all of you were lost in your pagan ways of thinking and showed you the truth? You know, it's fascinating about the false teachers in Paul's day. You know, a great many of them actually followed Paul. You know, wherever he planted a church, I mean, after some time, knowing that there was a Christian community there, they they would eventually show up, and then they'd confuse people by their teaching. That is to say, they never showed up on their own. They only showed up after someone else had started the church. And it's not that much different today. Look at where all the major heresy begins, and none of it begins by evangelizing people who have not heard of Christ. Almost all of it begins in places where the faith has already been planted. False teachers don't win converts. They subvert other people's converts. 
And so Paul's comment is a valid one. You'll have to look at him and ask whether or not this man was called by Christ. You see, if he wasn't, well, then there's nothing to talk about because the church that exists in Corinth is only a a fabrication. But as a matter of fact, it's not a fabrication. Paul's point stands. And the same point needs to be pressed today. See, I remember a number of years ago, someone beginning to attend the church where I was pastoring, and that man started passing out anti-Trinitarian literature in the foyer, and it was creating confusion. And I confronted him along with others and told him that activity won't be tolerated. And I remember his frustration and anger. See, on one occasion, he wrote me a note and he asked me why the Bible we were using used the word Lord as a substitute for the word Jehovah. Well, in truth, the Bible never calls God Jehovah. That was a mistake. It calls him Yahweh. But I decided to be patient with a man. I wrote him a note back and I explained that it was the New Testament writers without exception that whenever they quoted the Old Testament, they put in the word Lord wherever the letters Y-H-W-H were found. And we were simply following the lead of the apostles. We were doing what Paul, James, John, and Peter did. We translated it as Lord. And I'll never forget his response. He said, I'm so disappointed in you. (laughs) I let it ride, but I could almost hear what he was saying. You actually follow their lead rather than following my lead. And that was the point. See, I do know that Jesus called Matthew and Peter and John and Paul, along with the other prophets who wrote the New Testament, and through them, Jesus gave us the authoritative foundation for the truth. Now, once I know that, I'm then in a place where I can weigh whatever anyone else is saying. Once I've established where truth has come from, you see, that it's come through Jesus. And Jesus commissioned the men who were his authoritative interpreters, that is, the apostles. Once that's established, all false teachers lose their power. Go ahead and look at me, says Paul. And we reading this so many years later, well, we need to take his advice. Find out whether Jesus has accurately spoken through the apostles he has chosen, establish that fact, and then, on the basis of that truth, evaluate whatever anyone else says. That's the key. Make the Bible your foundation. past number of years, Back to the Bible Canada has been blessed to offer a unique Israel experience. A journey to the Holy Land under the teaching of Dr. John Newfeld, discovering first-hand locations across Israel that hold a place of prominence in the Bible. On every occasion, those who embraced the journey agreed it was a spiritual experience of a lifetime. Now's the time to plan ahead. In April of 2022, Back to the Bible Canada is offering our next Israel experience and you're invited to attend. Join an intimate group of brothers and sisters journeying across Israel under the teaching of Dr. John Newfeld. Experience inspirational events and activities that include Laugh-Again's own Phil Calloway and special musical guests. For more information, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Having established the basis of his authority, Paul makes the claim that Jesus called him to be an apostle, and then he goes to the next issue, verse 8. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, 
which the Lord gave for building you up and not destroying you, I am not ashamed. Now, this matter of boasting, well, we're going to read about this over and over again. You know, and Paul's going to say it in verse 13, where he promises that he will not boast beyond limits. Then in verse 17, he speaks about the truth that the man who boasts should boast in the Lord. Fast forward to 2 Corinthians 11, verse 10. He even says that this boasting of his will not be silenced. And in chapter 12, verse 1, he will say, I must go on boasting. And then for almost all of chapter 12, that's exactly what Paul does. See, I've often noticed that people who are unaccustomed to reading Paul often take exception to this. Doesn't he seem self-focused, they say? He almost seems to be obsessed with how he looks before others, shouldn't he tone this language down? So let's understand his boasting with a bit of context. First, we need to remember what the false teachers were saying about Paul. I mean, one of the great criticisms of him was that he wasn't a great public speaker. Greek culture was known for prizing rhetoric, public speaking ability. And by all accounts, Paul was not known for being great at that, and he often admits as much. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 1, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. See, I didn't use the style of lofty or exalted or well-trained oratory. I didn't do that. And of course, Paul's enemies knew that. See, in their culture, that was a fatal flaw. And it was one of the primary reasons they believed that they could convince people to stop listening to Paul. And so Paul's forced to defend his calling. Look, Christ didn't call me to be an orator, but an accurate exegete of Jesus. Paul was called first to explain Jesus and to win people to Jesus and not to himself. See, the great speakers in the ancient world attracted people to themselves. Paul defends his approach. And in response, the false teachers have said, you know, Paul's just boasting. He's trying to puff himself up. Now, when I read verse 8, I don't think Paul is saying he's boasting too much. Rather, he's repeating the argument of the false teachers. And when he says, even if I boast a little too much of our own authority, he means to say, even if I can be accused of boasting a little too much. Paul never believed he boasted too much. Look at what he says in 2 Corinthians 10, 13. And there, we will study that more closely when we get to it. But here he says, we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence that God has assigned to us. Let me suggest an example of that. You know, I'm recording this teaching during the COVID-19 global pandemic, and I have noticed some pastors and Bible teachers making what appears to me some, you know, very unwise statements about the state of the global pandemic. You know, people listen to these men because they have noted that, you know, these men have been very good Bible teachers in the past, and some of them have. But just because you understand scripture well doesn't mean you're an expert when it comes to infectious diseases. Indeed, mastering the scripture still will leave you ignorant of a great many other fields of human endeavor. Of course, it's not just pastors who fall into that. You know, I've sometimes heard scientists who are brilliant in their field of study, and then they make comments on the nature of God. See, realizing that people listen to them, well, it gives them a temptation to go beyond their level of authoritative knowledge. And people often listen to them, not realizing that once they've left their field of authority, you know, they've got nothing to say. But Paul knows where boasting begins and ends. 
And again, when he uses the word boasting, he doesn't mean he's bragging on himself. He means he'll not be quiet when he speaks in the realm of the authority he has received. And when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to establishing the church, when it comes to how the good news affects the relationships between Jews and Gentiles, when it comes to those things that Christ has called him to speak about, all the criticism in the world isn't going to shut him down. I will not be silenced, he says, for to do so would be a tragedy. That's Paul's commitment. No criticism about his lack of oratorical ability is going to shut him down. Indeed, I am operating in the sphere of my authority, he says. And that's so important for us to hear. See, in the church of Jesus Christ, every opinion is not as good as the next person's opinion. The truth of Jesus is not a matter of opinion. In the church, God has established a hierarchy. You don't like that? Listen up. First are the apostles. Second are the prophets. Third are those who have been charged to accurately explain the teaching of the apostles and prophets to the rest of us. Now then, Paul knows his place of authority. Perhaps others call it a boast, and so let it be. But notice in the latter part of verse 8 that the authority Paul has been given is not to lord it over the flock, or in his words, to destroy them. That is, to destroy their worth, or the important role that God has called them to play in the kingdom. See, Paul's ever mindful of the purpose of his authority. He says, it's to build you up. It's to ensure that you become all that Christ has called you to be and not to let the false teachers muscle in on that. What Paul says here is so very much like what Jesus taught earlier. Matthew 20, verse 25, Jesus acknowledges that the rulers of the Gentiles delight in lording it over their subjects. After all, their royalty and the subjects are exactly that. They're called to subject their will to the royalty. That's the way the world goes. And of course, that's still how it goes. Political elites lead, and the rest of us are called to bow and submit to them. But Jesus established a new kind of leadership in his church. He said that the one who leads must serve. He said that the one who leads must set aside his own needs and rather ensure that the needs of the flock are cared for. That doesn't mean that leaders are pushovers. No, no, they're leaders leading under the authority of Christ. But that's what Paul has said. Yeah, I've been given authority, but my authority is to build you up. Remember when he started, I had made mention of that central issue of the text. That is that the false teachers were saying they had significant reasons to argue that Paul was not the leader he claimed to be. He wasn't a great public preacher or speaker. He didn't look the part of a successful man. And on at least one occasion, instead of throwing his weight around while he chose to withdraw until emotion settled and calmness could be restored. All this, said the false teachers, is sure evidence Paul's not a leader. And of course, just like Samuel, when he first saw Eliab, was being led by external appearances and not what God was looking at. God says he looks at the heart. We don't. Now, we go to verses 9 and 10. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. I hope you see the criticism. When Paul writes, it's weighty. Even the false teachers had to admit that. His letters are filled with doctrinal content. They force you to think. They make you examine what you thought you knew about God, about the gospel, and about yourself. And indeed, Paul's letters do just that. You know, it was Peter who mentioned that about Paul. 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16, Peter writes, 
and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So notice what Peter calls Paul's letters. He calls them scripture. That is, they are of equal weight to all of the other writings in the Bible. Second, Peter calls them at times hard to understand. See, it takes effort to read and understand. But notice Peter also acknowledges that there are people out there who are interested in twisting the letters. So the false teachers are forced to admit there is a gravitas in Paul. Indeed, they can't ignore the depth in which he communicates. But that's not where their criticism began. They said, have a look at the man. He looks like a loser. And anyone who looks like that is a loser. So don't you see that for a short period of time, that's even what Samuel thought. He looked at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. But Paul won't give the false teachers that much ground. He, he doesn't say, ah, oh, yes, I guess, you know, my physical appearance is not really that much. No, no, he never says that. Look at verse 11. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. I'll be just as weighty in my letters when I actually show up. And here's what we learn. Christian leadership is not about being flashy or a show person or having the stage appeal that draws the crowds. That's what carnal human beings look for. Rather, Christian leadership is about content. It's about substance. Woe be to us if we don't understand that. For human beings look for outer appearances. Oh, if only we could see as God sees. Thanks, John. You know, I I think perhaps it's always been true to some degree, but it seems in our day we get so caught up in style rather than substance when it comes to those we follow. And should we be surprised when the style crashes and falls? If it's style that we want, then we're basically entertainers. And, uh, you know, with entertainment, I mean, if you look at, like, old television programs that were entertaining in one era, they no longer are as styles begin to shift and change. So, yes, it's true. There will be different styles in in leadership and ministry. But, you know, if content is what we want, the heart of the gospel, bringing people into holiness, all of that kind of stuff, it should be what we hunger for. That's our key. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Price of Victory, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. This month, Dr. Neufeld will continue his video series, The Missionary God which airs weekly on Back to the Bible Canada's YouTube channel. We believe these messages are so important for believers that we want to send you the expanded message series on CD for free. We'll explore questions like, why is it that God can allow so much suffering in the world? And why has God commanded us to make disciples of all nations? There are so many challenging questions, and though they may make us feel uncomfortable at times, they require Bible-focused responses. So join us this month on air, online, via podcast, or listen on the Back to the Bible Canada mobile app. Don't forget to ask for your free CD copy of this important series, 
by calling us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.